0: Chapter Sixteen of The King's Daughter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The King's Daughter by Pansy. Chapter Sixteen. Principle or Expediency. But he knoweth the way that I take. Mister Tresevant stood over by the mantel, leaning his arm on it and resting one hand on his head. His face was very pale, and his lips were pressed tightly together, as if he were trying to control some strong feeling. Dell sat in a low chair at a little distance, nervously picking to pieces a great pink rose, showering the leaves about the floor in reckless fashion. The pink on her cheek was deepened to a vivid crimson, and the hands that pulled apart the heart of the rose trembled visibly. When Mr. Tresevant finally spoke, his voice was low and constrained. It is a most singular idea of duty, one that I cannot comprehend. I trust too entirely in your truth to believe for a moment that it is a flimsy excuse and that you are hiding your real feelings from me. But is it not a very trivial question to come between us? Not trivial to me, Mr. Tresevant. I thought you understood my position on this question. I have surely reason to consider it in a very solemn light. But, Dell, I do not interfere with your views on the question. I have even told you that I respect them. What more would you have?' but are you not in sympathy with them? That is, I do not carry my ideas to the same length that you do. Surely, as a sensible woman, you do not require this of any man. I do not ask it of you. I ask it, she said, with trembling lips. On this one subject I ask it. I need it. I dare not do without it. Dell said Mr. Tresevant, and there was a touch of bitterness in the sarcasm of his tone, Do you really consider me in danger of becoming a drunkard, because I do not deem it proper to sign a total abstinence pledge? His tone seemed to give her strength. She gave him the benefit of a full look into the depths of her great earnest eyes, as she answered, slowly and steadily, I do not consider even that impossible. I have known men as secure as you seem to be who have fallen victims. I do not consider any man absolutely safe, who is not an absolute foe to liquor in all its forms. But it is not that phase of the difficulty that presents itself most forcibly to me. We are truly not in sympathy in regard to this thing. I have felt it keenly during the progress of our acquaintance. How much more sharply do you think I would feel it if my life were part of yours? There is another thing. I cannot feel that your views in regard to this subject are right. I cannot feel that God will bless you in them. You stand in the way of men who you know are in danger, even if you are not, and you do not put forth a helping finger. You even by your silence and example encourage them in their evil way. You do this very thing with Mr. Elliot. You must know that he is in danger, and you know what an influence you have over him. Yet how do you use it? And I look on and am powerless to help it, and sometimes it almost drives me wild. How do you think I could endure it under other circumstances?' "'You exaggerate difficulties,' he said, struggling with his own heart, and trying to speak calmly. "'It is your nature to do so. "'You are excitable, easily moved to extremes, "'and you see mountains where there are only molehills. "'Young Elliot, for instance, is safe enough, a little fast for a young man in his position, "'but I am doing what I can to restrain him, and hope to succeed in the end. "'Indeed, I do not think I deserve to be judged so harshly as you are judging me.' I am trying in my way to do good in the world, if it is not quite like your way. May not the master own it after all? Dal's voice was very humble in answer. I do not want you or any one to work in my way. I don't want to choose my way of working. I have asked God to show me his way. It is not a method of work, but a principle of which we are speaking now. I consider total abstinence from everything that intoxicates a solemn Christian duty you do not think any such thing. Now, Mr. Tresevant, how could we agree? By agreeing to disagree. You have a full and perfect right to think as you do, and, thinking so, are right in working to your views of duty. I accord this right to you. Can you not do the same by me? But can we both be right and both moving in opposite directions? Is there then no such thing as an enlightened conscience guiding toward the only right way? If I choose to think that making calls and visits on the Sabbath is a proper thing to do, have I full and perfect right to do so, and would you accord me that right? The cases are not parallel in the least, he said, changing his position uneasily. The one is a plain scripture injunction which we have no right to question, the other is at least only a difference of opinion. Now you have reached the very point where we should differ the most. I consider the one scripture injunction as plain and unquestionable as the other. When I hear my own poor father quoting the fact that you drink cider as an excuse for his business and his habits, can you wonder that I think the solemn declaration, If meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh, while the world standeth, as binding upon Christians as that other command, remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy? The first is not, it is true, in the form of a command. But should a Christian follow only commands without regard to the spirit of the gospel? That is true, he said gently, but Dell, the precise path in which a man should walk, is not always marked out for him in the Bible. He is left to be guided by his conscience, and you must learn to think that those who differ from your peculiar views may be conscientious in doing so. Perhaps, he added, with a sickly attempt at a smile, it may be part of your mission to reform me. I will try to be a faithful pupil. Won't you take me in hand? But Dell could not control her voice to answer him lightly, a sudden mist swam before her eyes. She looked down at the rose-leaves in utter silence. Her companion turned suddenly from his position by the mantel, pushed an ottoman just in front of her, and sat down. Dell, he said, and his voice was gentleness and tenderness itself. Dear friend, won't you think this all over again, and see if you can afford for a mere trifling difference of opinion to blast your life and mine? You have told me that you loved me, and surely I have offered you no mean gift, the strong, true, abiding love of a manly heart. I feel that I need you. I need your help and sympathy in my work. I believe that God would bless us in our efforts to work unitedly for him. It cannot be possible that you will let a very trifle come between us. Can you afford to be so indifferent to God's crowning gift, human love? The deep crimson glow went out entirely from Dell's cheek, leaving it marble-like in its whiteness. A vivid sense of the desolateness and unlovingness of her life rushed over her. A vivid sense of the fullness of love and care and protection that this strong human arm offered for her to lean upon surged in upon her. Why not let herself be so blessed? Why should she be shut out from this crowning gift of God? She trembled with the great longing to follow the pleading of her own heart. Why not? He was a good man, a Christian man. She did not doubt in the least. Why let this trifle separate them? It was a trifle, surely. From the not-distant barroom came sounds of drunken revelry, voices many and loud, some oaths mingling with the coarse words and laughter. Her father's voice distinctly marked above the others came full upon her ear, loud and thick like a man half-drunken. She shivered with pain. If all that could be banished from the world, what a father he might be! How many fathers, yes, and how many husbands might be saved! Yet here was this man sitting before her, his pale, pure face looking anxiously into hers. This man, who was almost her promised husband, thought the temperance movement throughout the land a misguided sort of fanaticism, thought that men might be educated to a moderate Christian use of liquors, as of many other things that became improper if indulged in without restraint. Should she, whose life was pledged for a hand-to-hand struggle with what she believed to be the monster evil of the world, link that life with such lukewarmness as this? She drew a long, heavy sigh, then, bending slightly forward, spoke with a tremulousness of suppressed emotion, not of indecision. Mr. Tresevant, I feel to my very soul the honor you have done me. I have given you proof of that, in that I have confessed to you that my heart answers, as as my conscience will not. My life is pledged to a certain work in which you do not believe." I feel that I could not do that work which I have promised God to try to do if I became your wife. It is incomprehensible to me, he said in a low placid tone, after a few moments of utter silence, it is incomprehensible to me if you feel toward me what you profess that you can let this strange chimera come between us. She looked at him searchingly, and after a moment spoke timidly. Is it any stranger than that you, professing to think almost as I do, should not be willing to yield one inch of your views to help me in what is such a solemn, terrible thing to me?' Mr. Tresevant pushed his seat back with a sudden jerk. He was not a meek man by nature. He had been greatly humiliated that evening. He had been keeping himself under control for the past two hours. He spoke quickly and bitterly. "'I will not be forced into signing a pledge for any woman on earth, not even you.' A perfect shower of rose-leaves torn in tiny bits fell at his feet, and Dell sat erect and with clear steady eyes looked into his. She was not meek by nature either, not she, and she had the advantage of him in that she knew he stood on the weaker side, and could not argue even to his own satisfaction in favor of his position. Her voice was clear and firm. Then, Mr. Tresevant, we seem to understand each other. I can only repeat what I have told you before. I CAN NEVER MARRY A MAN WHO WILL NOT ARRAY HIMSELF ON THE SIDE OF GOD AND HUMANITY IN FIGHTING AGAINST THIS AWFUL WICKEDNESS. Mr. Tresevant arose without another word, walked over to a side-table, and possessed himself of his hat, then came back to Dell and spoke in low husky tones, GOOD-BYE, to which he received no answer, and seemed to expect none, for he turned away and went swiftly out at the open door and down the street. As for Dell, you think she leaned on the window-seat and shed hot, bitter tears. She didn't, such was not her nature. She looked at the fastenings of the blinds, drew down the shades, turned on the flame of the lamp a little more, noticing for the first time that it smoked. Then she went to the kitchen and gave her directions to Sally about the morning meal, as composedly as if she did not realize that she had just put from her the dearest and best thing that earthly life could ever offer her, stopping on her way back to see that her father's room was in complete and dainty order. Arrived at her own room, she locked herself in, turned down the light to the lowest point that its smoky propensities would tolerate, and sat down to look the events of the evening squarely in the face. Nonetheless, for her outward composure, did she carry a very heavy heart. The long, blank future stretched out dully before her. She had turned away from the joy and blessedness that were held out for her, She realized in all its fullness what she might have been. She was not sorry for her evening's work, not in the least. She had nerved herself for the task. Her words had not been spoken under the impulse of the moment. They had been carefully and painfully and prayerfully gone over, when she saw that this question was to come to her. A little lingering hope there might have been, that Mr. Tresevant's prejudices were not so deeply rooted as they had seemed, that he was more in sympathy with her work than she had thought, but never an instant's hesitancy as to her duty in the matter, except during that one breathless moment down in the parlor. That was all past. She was very quiet, not regretful. She had asked God to show her the right way, and she believed fully and firmly that he had, so there was nothing to regret. But she could not help thinking that threescore and ten was a very long time for people to live. She even wondered, sadly, what those people did who had to live seven, eight, and nine hundred years in the olden time. She was thankful that no such lot would be hers. There was a great deal of work to do, and she must not shirk it. But when it was all done, or, better still, if the time should come soon for her to leave it all, come through no seeking of hers, but because the king wanted his daughter at court, and called her home, how pleasant it would be. She had no tears to shed, her heart felt too heavy for tears, but she took her one unfailing friend, her little well-worn Bible, and turned its leaves rapidly, no loitering tonight over precious verses here and there. She knew what she needed tonight and turned straight to it. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. She felt herself in trouble, she had asked to be led, she felt that God was leading her, She did not murmur, but the way he had chosen for her feet seemed very hard. End of chapter sixteen. Recording by Tricia G.